0: If everybody can see the screen, Sorry, for me, For some reason I lost my mouse for a second there. Uh, give me one second. Okay, this is unpredictable. There we go, right? Excellent, we're back online. Everybody sees me, everybody hears me, correct? Yep, great. Uh, so for today's session, um, I was hoping to talk about I was going to talk about brain trauma in general. Like I said, in terms of disclosures,
1: it was kind of short notice because I had a very long call. Um, Feel free to ask me any questions, uh, whether it's uh, something to do with uh, the ICU aspect, the surgery aspect, or the technical aspect of working in the emergency room with these cases. Um, In terms of our objectives, there's a lot to get through. So uh, I was asked to talk about classification systems for head traumas. Uh, I was also asked to talk about the initial management and uh, about base of skull fractures and associated injuries, certain findings that are worrisome on CT scans or clinical exam, uh, non-bleed trauma-related conditions that can happen in these patients, the indications for imaging, uh, high ICP, how to treat it and detect it, and any other symptoms and signs. That's about, usually that's about three or four lectures for any curriculum. Uh, I'm going to try and get it done in about, uh, let's say, an hour, maybe an hour and 15, uh, with the questions and everything else going on. So, our scope is not pre hospital management, uh, it's not intraoperative management, and it's not damage control techniques. It's the in hospital management, the recess, and the ICU, and then it's the exams, what you get asked in the exams, and some more stuff that you need to know for the exams. Uh, In terms of references, uh, my main references are uh, the Toronto Brain Foundation guidelines and uh, the guidelines center around uh, prognostication of injuries, uh, the management of uh, severe brain injuries in general, and the guidelines for when to operate. And that's basically where uh, most of the references are from unless I write down something at the bottom.
0: In terms of the overview of what happens with a brain trauma patient in general, so in in trauma, um,
1: we tend to obsess over uh, story arcs for patients and trajectories for how they're going to land and where things are going and things like that. And in terms of uh, brain injury patients, uh, we have a golden hour, just like most trauma patients, where we see the primary brain insult and how it can hurt the patient and how to make time-sensitive decisions within that first hour. To be able to make those decisions, we don't need a lot. We kind of need to find a classification system, get a prognostication, and then decide on a CT scan and begin some therapeutics. But nothing big yet. The secondary brain insult is where it's at. For us in trauma, in terms of the areas where we're still researching things, we still have a little bit of nuanced thought, And that usually involves questions about how to intervene surgically, whether or not to intervene surgically, uh, any medical interventions that need to be done, and follow-up imaging. And the long-term prognosis is supportive care, therapy, and rehab. And that typically takes 90 days. For the scope of this talk, we're just going to concentrate on what we do in the resuscitation room, what we do in the ICU, and what we do in the OR. We're not going to delve into uh, the rehab, because the rehab on its own would probably be something that's way out of my league. I'm not very qualified at it. I think that a and physiotherapists will probably be able to give you a much better um, sort of idea of how that works and, and how, how, uh, how to address that. But in general, um, you know, I would say that the rehab part is something that is not very well explored or very well studied. And, you know, I might talk about that at a later date if I'm requested to, but it's not something that's within the scope
0: of your exams either.
1: For our first part, we're just going to talk about the primary brain insults, starting with the uh, classification systems, uh, prognosis, and the therapeutics, and the golden hour. So when you talk about traumatic brain injuries, up until, I'd say, this point, many of us were told that traumatic brain injuries are uh, subdural, subarachnoid, extradural, uh, and um, parenchymal, or intraventricular. And those were the bleeds that we were taught because there was some utility to teaching them in that way. Uh, nowadays, we have a slightly different classification system where I would contend that knowing the difference between a penetrating trauma and a blood trauma might be more important. And the reason why is because they really are different beasts with a lot in common. It's kind of like a gallbladder polyp. And a gallbladder stone, they have the same pathology. Effectively, the definitive surgical management is very, very similar. But the approach to the workup is very different in terms of how you prognosticate and what you should do in the trauma bit. So this is the traditional sort of uh, classification system. You know, we talk about different types of hemorrhages according to the areas in the anatomy that's involved. So we talk about intraparenchymal hematomas, ventricular hematomas, subarachnoids, subgerals, and epidurals. But that may not translate well to what we do in the resuscitation. So let's talk about our first case. It's, uh, all my cases are 27-year-olds for some reason. I don't know what happened today. 27-year-old uh, patient presents with a shotgun injury to the head. Uh, he is tachycardic. His systolic is 180. He's satin fine, but he is gasping. And his GCS is three because he's not doing anything but breathing. And this is the scene that you have in front of you. Obviously, because you're all good trauma surgeons, the first thing that you do is address the airway and assess the pupils uh, without uh, sedation. You find that his pupils are dilated slightly and one of them is sluggishly reactive, but you're not sure what you're seeing there. And clearly with this type of injury, you're a bit worried. You decide to intubate right off the bat. You deal with the breathing, and you deal with the circulation. When I say you deal with the circulation, I don't mean just two large-bore IVs and some crystalloid. I mean, figuring out how to control this massive area of bleeding. And that's sort of the difference between white belt level and blue belt level trauma. It's that you recognize that this bleeding is gonna be the reason why you don't get to CT. You then move on to your disability where you're assessing for gross limb movement. Personally, I go for moving and sensation grossly intact. Exposure with a log roll or rectal exam to check for rectal tone which in this case is completely absent, and you do a secondary survey in adjuncts. Now, this is what the patient looks like by the time you've done that process. You can see that we have some form of temporary hemostasis, and the enemy of good is perfect. You can also see that I did not move from from the paramedic stretcher yet. This is the paramedic stretcher, the patient is still on there, and the reason why is because there's no utility to doing that until you've arrested the bleeding and you've secured the airway. And these should be our management priorities because a fair bit, I would say, six out of ten of our non-survivable mortalities in Adan, when I was working there, were head injuries, and most of them died because of a lack of an ability for us to sustain them through the initial period if they died in resource. If they made it out of resus, they had other reasons, but the literature also supports the same notion, that to get them out of Resource, you need to control the bleeding and control the airway. Especially if it's a brain trauma, whether it's blunt or it's penetrating. Now my question to you is, and you know, I think you can either chat it in or pull it in, I'm fine with whatever. In terms of imaging and adjuncts, which would you deem essential for this patient? A chest x-ray and a pan scan? A chest x-ray, a pelvic x-ray or an a pan scan, a chest x-ray, a CT brain, or a chest x-ray, pelvis, fast and pan scan. Which of these would you deem to be the most
0: important? be-all and end-all, have-to-be-done type of situation. So this is extremely interesting. I'm just gonna this side there, because I'm gonna see everything else that's going on. not very, here. So for me, this is quite interesting. Uh, that for the most part, people think that all you need to do is a chest
1: x-ray and a CT brain. I'm very happy that a, a whole bunch of you
0: also think that uh, it would make sense uh, to do a full ATLS protocol, including a pan scan. Which, including a pan scan. And the reason why I think it's, it's particularly good is because, you know, although there's
1: a matter of debate here and there's some contention, there are two big schools of thought. The first school of thought is a CT brain is what's going to save this patient's life. He came in with a history from the paramedics, and therefore, I know what I'm doing. Let's get that CT brain. A chest texture is the only prerequisite to make sure that there's no pneumothorax and my ET tube is in the right place. That is not wrong in most trauma centers. That is wrong in certain trauma centers where they spend a lot of time dealing with penetrating head injuries. And the reason why is because we tend to have a classification system where we've been fooled before. And that's why the other half of you, give or take, have talked about uh, chest x-rays and uh, pelvic x-rays, fast ultrasound and pan scan. So I ended up doing a chest x-ray for this guy and a pelvic x-ray. And lo and behold, He has one shotgun pellet that has penetrated into his pelvis and impacted there on his hip. So this patient is no longer an isolated head injury. And all of a sudden now we're dealing with a far more complicated problem. And if you'd taken him to CT scan and he dropped his pressure,
0: you would have wished you would have done this fast that showed you that the patient had free fluid. Now, with that in mind, which one Where would you go with this patient? Would you do a
1: a CT of the abdomen first? Would you do a PAN scan first? Would you do a laparotomy and then a scan? Or would you do a CT brain and then a laparotomy? Knowing that the patient's blood pressure is still maintained, he's actually hypertensive at this point, and that you have some control of the bleeding of the head, what would you do first?
0: And be honest, there's no right and wrong answer here. Like with the first thing, there is a matter of debate here. So again, this is very good, because what this
1: tells me is that you know you're just as confused as a lot of us as attendings are and experts, people who call themselves experts in trauma are. In general, the right answer for the previous one, Masarat, is to uh, perform a chest X-ray and an X-ray pelvis, and once you've done those, then address the concern of the fast ultrasound and then go to CT if you want to go to CT, because you have a projectile with multiple pellets as opposed to a single bullet. And yes, Miriam, he is stable and does not need steroids, so it's okay. In this particular case, because of the fact that the patient is stable and we knew that there was an abdominal pathology, we made the decision that we we're gonna to go to laparotomy. And the question was whether to do the laparotomy and then go to the, C- do the CT brain or not.
0: We decided to do the CT brain first because we had a window and this is what the scout film showed, right? And you can see that he has multiple projectiles here, a whole bunch of them.
1: You've got like uncountable number of pellets. You can also see that he has an open skull
0: fracture, basically. And in addition to that, you can see that the brain is hypoperfused, and so therefore. we needed to do a CT angio. And you can see that he had the circle of willis that was intact
1: on the CT angio. And based on this, we decided to take him to the OR, perform a laparotomy, and uh, address the abdominal injury, which was a small liver injury and a small mesenteric tear. Uh, We then dealt with the brain, and, uh, um, you know, the question becomes, how common is it for this presentation to happen? I know Nasrat was asking, you know, whether we should be doing these things regularly. The question is not whether or not to get the chest x-ray, x-ray, pelvis, and fast ultrasound. It's when to get them. And Unfortunately, this case is uh, the rule rather than the exception. When you look at all comer data, even in war zones, fragmentation injuries account for 62% of head traumas, fragmentation meaning that there's more than one projectile there. Okay? Of those, only 2% have isolated head injuries. Most of them have other injuries. And of those, whether you're in a war zone or not, 10 to 20% will have a head or neck injury that is surgically correctable. And if it's not surgically correctable, they will die. So if you look at the killed in action data from the first Gulf War, the killed in action data tells you that most of the patients will die from non-surgically correctable torso injuries, i.e. aortic or venous injuries of big named vessels, or they will die of CNS injuries. And many of them will have other concurrent injuries like we talked about. So our local experience seems to mirror that in Adan. The data is embargoed because we're going to publish it very soon. Uh, Everybody should download the paper. It's a very good paper, not because I wrote it, but because one of my residents wrote it, and I think it's really, really good. Um, But in general, I would say, our local experience has been the same. In penetrating trauma, we have, of the head, we have a second injury someplace else. Part of it is also because in the civilian population, penetrating traumas to the head are mislabeled and are usually combined head and neck and torso injuries. And I'll explain that in a second. Never forget that in these patients, the priorities are airway breathing and circulation for the primary survey. Disability and exposure are secondary priorities. But in your secondary survey, tetanus toxoid, antibiotics, Controlling the bleed in other places, doing the blood gas to see whether or not your patient is actively bleeding, and addressing the craniotomy early, making the decision to operate early, all play a hand in treating your patient and in producing good mortality outcomes. Not all patients are equal, but have a low threshold to scan the brain. Anybody with a laceration across the head should get a CT brain, by any means, based on current data. And I can actually. Um, you know, argue that point uh, fairly definitively. Adir, yes. In all penetrating wounds, you should consider tetanus toxoid because you don't know how the penetrating wound happened and you don't know whether or not there's uh, metal involved and because the cost-benefit is there, especially if your patient can't give a history. And as you can clearly see with the first patient, there was a hole in the head and it's very hard to give a history when you have a hole in the head. When you're dealing with uh, single projectile injuries, uh, you should zone in on that area and and treat it first. So you should get the CT brain first. When you're dealing with blunt injuries, when you're dealing with shrapnel injuries, when you're dealing with multiple projectiles, you know, it's very hard not to get a PAN scan in these patients. And the data seems to support it, but the data is military literature. Prognosis in brain injuries in general relies on the GCS, the pupils, and the systolic blood pressure dropping below 90 off of vasopressors. If you have any of these three, your mortality is tenfold higher from any brain injury. So if your GCS is below six, or if you have pupils that are somewhat dilated, and sluggish and non-reactive, your mortality is now hitting uh, 70% in hospital, uh, 50% in the trauma bed. So systolic blood pressure less than 90 means that even with a mild to moderate brain injury, your mortality risk is higher and your complication risk is higher. Certain injuries such as this with brain content coming out clearly with an anterior injury that crosses the circle of Willis, 100% mortality. Injuries such as this with the laceration and no clear cut exposure of the scalp with the temporalis muscle and the frontalis muscle exposed has an extremely low mortality. Injuries such as this with a clear depressed skull fracture has an intermediate mortality and is dictate, and dictated mainly by us and how we treat these patients in the sense of urgency. The prognosis in penetrating injury cannot be dictated without a CT brain, and that's because you need to see the trajectory, and you need to see whether or not across the circle of wheels. Something that looks like this that goes anterior and posterior from the optic chiasm area, where I have a unibrow here, all the way around the back over here, is more likely to traverse the circle of wheels, especially if it goes through the occipital frontal region because of the fact that it could potentially hit the circle of Willis, like you can see here, and cause major torrential avascular problems that will lead to impending death. Something that's on the periphery that skives like this, across this area, less likely to cause something of that nature because the patient will decompress themselves and the circulation in the brain is actually preserved. You can see that this patient walked in like this, He had this CT brain initially, very snazzy 3D reconstruction, and then ended up doing his own craniectomy by pushing the bone out. And the rest of his brain actually remained quite viable. The patient survived to leave. Part of it is because he's young, but the other part is because these patients tend to do their own craniectomies. So I would argue that a CT angio is a must. My problem is that the literature does not support this 100% because the literature is underpowered for penetrating head injuries. That's the main reason why. When we talk about blunt trauma, traditionally I would have spent a very long time telling you about thunderclap headaches and subarachnoid hematomas, telling you about a lucid interval in, in uh, subdural hematomas, and telling you about uh, the middle meningeal artery and being smacked across the head in a pinpoint area over here in epidural hematomas, and about hypertension in intraparenchymal hematomas. But you have to ask yourself what the point is in these situations, especially when in modern times, we have access to neurosurgeons 24-7, 365. Granted, granted, and I understand completely that our neurosurgeons work out of one center and that they're very overwhelmed, but we have better access than we did in 1987 when I would have spent four hours talking about this issue. And so the next question I'd like to address when to get a PAN scan and when to get an isolated CT brain, in the context of blunt trauma. So which of these patients should get a PAN scan? A 55-year-old with a sudden collapse in the middle of a treatment center toilet that was witnessed, or a shopping center toilet, a 13-year-old GCS of 15 who recalls the event
0: after falling off his bike, or a 20-year-old college student. Which of them should get a PAN scan? So, excellent. The vast majority got this one right. Oh, oh, you're failing me now. And we are back again, excellent, very good. So yeah, so the
1: 20-year-old with a diminished GCS and unrecalled event is probably the one who's most appropriate to get a PAN scan. Now, which of these is more likely to benefit from an isolated CT brain,
0: provided that you did full ATLS, chest X-ray, everything else? Next question. Which one of them would probably benefit from a CT brain? You don't need to answer it in the panel, and the polls, you can answer it through the chat, Which- Hello? I apologize, Uh, technical error. Uh, I'm about to come back on. Give me one second. Okay, can everybody see this? Great. Okay, great. Excellent, excellent,
1: excellent. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, Small technical glitch. So, uh, by far, uh, the most significant Actually, can I get the questions just typed in on the chat, like A, B, C or whatever, or just type your answers in? Uh, it's just easier that way because I think that my computer keeps freezing because it's an old Mac. So um, I would say that the biggest change the biggest change that we've had is uh, the development of criteria that allow us not to miss head injuries. And those include the Canadian CT head rule, the New Orleans criteria, and the Nexus 2 criteria. In general, these criteria are not designed to lower the number of CT scans that you do. In general, they're actually designed to allow us to not have somebody go home because we don't think that they have a thunderclap headache or because they have a lucid interval and come back down. That's what they're designed to do in general. And so as a brief summary for these criteria, anybody with a headache, a GCS below 15 for two hours, a suspected skull fracture, and the signs of a skull fracture are raccoon eyes, um, you know, Betel's sign around the ear there's some uh, repeated vomiting or CSF rhinorrhea anybody with any form of amnesia or any form of behavior that is noted to be abnormal or a dangerous mechanism or who may have a toxicology problem should have a CT brain done. that's the consensus among all these criteria the particularities of them depend on the center so the Nexus 2 is designed for hospital flow They scan the most, but they get the people out the most quickly. The New Orleans criteria is designed to not miss any surgically correctable or medically correctable condition that might require monitoring. The Canadian CT head rule needs to have two hours of monitoring to make sure that your GCS isn't corrected, but has the highest chance for keeping somebody going in terms of not missing anything, right? It's less likely to miss. For PAN scans and went to do a whole body CT scan, the most studied is the Western Trauma Association algorithm. It's in fact one of the very few randomized controlled trials. It's based on the REACT trial. And what it showed was that you're less likely to miss injuries and the patients are likely to be discharged quicker with no mortality benefits. But in that trial, it, we talked about uh, major mechanisms such as deceleration injuries, falls of one and a half meters, pelvic fractures, long bone fractures, a seatbelt sign, first rib fractures, scapular fractures, and sternal fractures, being reasons to extend from just doing a CT brain to doing a PAN scan. Uh, It's 1.5 stories, uh, which is about, I would say, I don't know. I don't know the difference between stories and meters. My personal cutoff in meters, Badr, is about, I would say, 15 meters, 10, sorry, 15 uh, feet, 10 feet, so that's about three meters, right? Three, maybe five meters. Uh, perfect. Yes, whatever they said. Four, four and a half meters it is. The debate is about the metrics. That's, that's great. So, yeah, about four and a half meters. And any significant bone fractures that, that would lead to that sort of being an issue. What's interesting is neurological deficits are about the second most common reason why you miss injuries, and that's why they're included here as well, as well as distracting injuries. So distracting injuries are people who are screaming from pain because they broke their foot and therefore you can't examine their balance. The literature says that in these patients, you're more likely to detect missed injuries and your missed injury rate drops from about 20% to 5% if you apply prospectively, right? The other thing is that in our data, locally at Adan, and this is not embargoed data, what we found is Somebody who comes in with a significant mechanism of injury complaining of pain in the shoulder or pain in the chest, when you apply these criteria, you're likely to find a brain injury and you're likely to find a skull fracture. Our intention to treat is not there, but you're more likely to find a brain injury. This is very important in terms of documentation for disability and things like that and medical legality. When we talk about the subclassifications of types of brain bleed, you know, I'm going to talk about this, but I don't feel strongly about it. Does that make sense? Subdural bleeds uh, are considered venous bleeds. They tend to marble a lot. They have layering, and they have a concave shape or a cresenteric shape. Epidural or extradural bleeds have a convex shape. When I was a medical student, I remembered it like this. Convex has an X in it. Extradural has an X in it, and that's why they're convex. They're usually lens-like. They're mainly arterial in origin. And they tend to expand a lot more quickly because they're arterial in origin. The middle meningeal artery is about the size of the radial artery, and so that gives you the math. And they tend to blow up people a lot quicker than other types of bleed. In addition to that, they usually do in the trauma bay, actually. In addition to that, there are also bleeds that are more associated with a sudden blunt object trauma. Subarachnoid bleeds have a fair amount of bleeding within the parenchyma and around the parenchyma and tend to evolve with time. But the other thing about subarachnoid bleeds is that they're associated with a particular type of mechanism of injury called the coup-contra-coup injury. Now, when that happens, you have an initial point of impact with an initial bleed on the coup side. Coup is French for this side. And contra-coup is the other side. You get the brain smacked and moves across to the side, to the other side, and you have a secondary bleed on the other side. And the reason why that happens is literally the same reason as why when you take a hammer and you hit the bottom of a cylinder or a metal object, you get an echo and you get sound waves that change and distort on the other side. This is literally what happens within a coup contra coup injury. And the level of reflection and dissipation of force is based on how big the head is. And that's called the alpha angle. Intraventricular bleeds are rarely primary bleeds in trauma. They're usually bleeds that occur within the subarachnoid space or intraparenchymal bleeds that are then absorbed into the ventricles and become cystic hygromas. So with all due respect to certain radiologists, when somebody tells me that there's a, an improvement in a subarachnoid bleed, but there's an interval increase in intraventricular hemorrhage, you know, I take that with a grain of salt. I personally believe that these uh, patients and a lot of neurosurgeons and neurologists also believe this have a subarachnoid bleed that has been absorbed into the ventricular space and I don't think it causes that much worry. The problem that I have with blunt injuries is that they're associated with things like this. They're, they're, they're associated, especially subarachnoid bleeds, with of skull fractures and horrendous CSF rhinorrhea like what you're seeing here, right? Everybody's seeing the video, yeah? Great, uh, I, I really like this video because it brings the point home never to put the NG in. I, I show this video, you're not gonna put an NG in, it's done, Right. These associated injuries, the most sensitive test for them is a CT. And the reason why it's the most sensitive test is because of the fact that the CT will show you, number one, if you have a facial fracture, number two, if you have an orbital injury, and number three, whether or not you have communication with the brain, because communication with the brain means that you're no longer dealing with a blunt injury. You are now dealing with a penetrating injury, and your management is going to be the same as what we talked about for penetrating injury. Okay. Depressed skull fractures are also associated with seizures. When they occur, you should control the seizure, and we'll talk about that in a second, but you should probably repair them definitively early. In every single other case, because you've decompressed the brain to an extent, as you can see here in this CT scan for that young gentleman, because you've had a chance to decompress the brain, from the nature of the fracture, and the brain has been decompressed into the sinuses, do not expect these patients to lateralize. For the most part, their brains do okay, except for in the cases of depressed skull fractures. As you can see here, the patient kind of did his own marsupialization of his sinuses. He even did a little bit of his own craniectomy. has a little bit of a depressed skull fracture, but it's not that bad. Treat them like open in the trauma base. So give them your tetanus, your antibiotics, start them on uh, hypertonic therapy if they need it. We'll talk about that in a second. And if they're depressed or seizure forming, then uh, treat surgically, certainly very early on, but start your anti-epileptics. Secretly between you, me, and four walls, a trade secret here, propofol were birth suppressed even the worst epilepsy. But you shouldn't use propofol as first line. It's usually third line in the epilepsy literature. So if you're really stuck With a seizure forming patient, and you can't get them to the CT scan, and you're really worried, intubating them with propofol may not be a bad thing to do. You didn't hear from me, but it may not be a bad thing to do. The definitive repair should be delayed until the brain is settled. So, belly before brain, because you need to maintain the patient's blood pressure, like we talked about in the first case scenario, but brain before face, because you need a functioning brain to be able to enjoy any facial features that you have. So let's talk about another type of associated injury with the second case that we have. It's a 27 year old patient. I told you they were all 27. He comes in as a GCS of six. You intubate, you perform your primary and secondary survey. He has no other injuries of note. His fast is negative, his chest x ray is negative, his x ray pelvis does not show any, and I mean any, uh, form of fractures. Patient's absolutely stable, and you do the CT brain for his GCS of six. And as you can see, there are a couple of dots here and there, but there's nothing very definitive. You repeat the CT brain 24 hours later, it's the same. You repeat it 48 hours later, it looks the same. You even have a CT angioid done because you're that good, and your CT angioid of the head and neck is okay. After three days, his GCS is still
0: stable, and it's still six. What do you do next? What's the next test that should be done? Okay, I'm seeing a lot of A's. This is very good. I'm liking the fact that we're seeing a lot of A's here. Okay. Uh, I don't know, the video's not working. It's fine. You'd be seeing me smiling right now. It's good that the
1: information the is getting through because 10 years ago, this would have been a problem. Diffuse axonal injuries look like a normal CT brain to the untrained eye. To somebody who looks at these things on a regular basis, diffuse exome injuries can be seen on a CT brain. There are indirect signs such as mild changes to the tracts, hyperlucency, petechial hemorrhages that you see around the point of impact, and there is a theory that these patients are having more advanced versions of what we see in concussions. So concussions and diffuse exome injury There is a theory, and this theory has some weight to it, that they're more or less a disease spectrum rather than separate diseases, right? Obviously, the MRI is the correct answer, and doing the MRI will have shown you hyperlucency and inflammation. And the idea here is that what you have is a disjointment of the myelin sheaths, which are the wires that connect the smart neurons in the brain, that connects the different parts of the brain together, You have shearing forces that rip them apart. This causes some inflammation, calcium deposition, and then you cannot cannot conduct electricity in your brain anymore. The action potentials do not go through. And this is just an experimental model that I put up because I have no life, and these are the issues that keep me up at night. And uh, the brown stuff is calcium deposition, And you can see that, uh, you know, you have a bunch of very healthy neurons, but nowhere for the signal to go anymore. Because you have shearing forces that are ripped apart. That is the most boring slide in this whole talk. I swear every single other slide is going to be awesome and amazing. Okay. Now, there is a large body of data that says that doing CT scans is enough for us to detect diffuse exome injury clinically. This data is relatively new. It's from the prognosis paper from the Trauma Brain Foundation guidelines. And it's from the Marshall paper in 1991. Until about the 90s, we all felt that you need to get an MRI after the CT scan for any stable patient to see the extent of damage, quote, unquote. We now know that that's not necessarily true and that a CT scan with a good clinical sense will tell you enough. There's also a growing body of data from the 2011 paper from the same group, the Marshall group, that tells us that grades one through to three There's no difference in outcomes and that you should support these patients no matter what you do. This kind of concludes our golden hour session. Next I'll be talking about, and I'll try and make this relatively quick
0: because I know that we're running out of time to an extent, next I'll be talking about secondary brain insults and how to